Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The boosters and the best practices to fight Delta. We should have a mask mandate. The reason being is Delta can be transmitted so readily. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The median price for a home in San Diego is expected to rise. So it's very intense in San Diego how many homes are selling for over asking price. I look back at the 2003 California recall election and a book about following your path to success. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Earlier this morning, Johnson & Johnson announced findings that booster doses of their one-shot coronavirus vaccine would provide a significant boost in immunity to recipients. This comes only days after FDA approval was granted for the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine and only a week after leading health officials announced plans to deliver booster shots of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to all Americans. As the nation continues to grapple with its fourth wave of the virus, many Americans are left with questions about the vaccines, the status of their approval, and their long-term efficacy. Joining me with more is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks very much. Great to be with you. So FDA approval was finally granted for the Pfizer vaccine just days ago. You've been critical of how long it's taken for this approval process to play out. What's your reaction to this news? Well, I'm certainly gratified that it did get approved uh, and it will help considerably. The only issue was the approval had it come in late May or June, which was certainly possible. It would have done so much more to prevent the toll of the Delta wave that we're now experiencing. So it will lead uh, to, and already has, 
a lot more mandates of companies and schools and universities, municipalities, health systems, everywhere across the board. But had that occurred many weeks ago, it would have been even more helpful. Plus, we know that many people were holding out for getting the vaccination to make sure that it was passed this so-called emergency authorization and had been given the full FDA go-ahead. So there will be many individuals apart from the mandates who will now go on to get vaccinated, which is great. And can you explain in layman's terms how efficacy for a vaccine can wane over time and why boosters would be necessary? Before Delta, there was little evidence of this waning issue. But what happened with this Delta strain, it's so much more formidable. It's not just more contagious, but it's challenged the vaccines. It's the antibody waning problem with Delta specifically over time that starts at around five or six months but still protection that's quite strong against hospitalization or very severe illness because of the originally uh, induced cellular response against the virus. You know, we have a sense of how the vaccines administered in this country wane over time, but what about the vaccines elsewhere? What is data showing around the globe? Well, it's interesting. This problem of the waning immunity has first shown up in Israel because they were the earliest country to get to high-level vaccination. But we are seeing it not just with the Pfizer and Moderna, also with AstraZeneca. And I suspect because of Delta, we'll see it across the board. Uh, But, you know, the studies of in large numbers of people past six months uh, are just starting to come in in recent weeks. And that's the Delta wave, of course, just started here in July. So we're just getting our hand on the data. Unfortunately, in the United States, we don't have national data. So we have to rely on you know, San Diego County, LA County, and other county and city reports, which is really unfortunate because we could do so much better if we had national data to be tracking. Does the waning immunity provided by our current vaccines against the Delta variant impact FDA approval for booster shots specifically? Right. Well, Pfizer just filed for their booster shot today. Moderna will be following up, I'm sure, within days on that as well. The booster shots look like they're going to be important. One thing we have to acknowledge is we need vaccines around the world. And by shunting them internally, that may reduce what we can do to help uh, containment of this virus throughout the world. Do we know how long booster shots would provide additional immunity for? Well, the hope is you always want to be optimistic that be for years. Originally, we knew from SARS-CoV-2, one, the original SARS virus in 2003, that people had an immune response that was intact even 17 years later. And the hope was that the vaccine was going to do that. But as it turned out, it might have, but Delta changed the whole landscape. Um, The question now is with this high level of uh, neutralizing antibodies that happened just days after the booster, uh, instead of weeks, it's just a couple of days. Well, that then help with respect to a durable response that would last for years? Or are we going to be looking at boosters, you know, every six months? I sure hope not. Uh, Hoping for a durable response, but we'll only know when we go six and 12 and 18 months out from where we are right now, once we start a booster program. Will these boosters be tweaked for the more transmissible variants? Well, the Delta variant certainly deserves a specific booster. uh, And they're It's a work in progress, but it's not ready yet. It hasn't gone through the obligate trials that would be required by FDA. 
So it's months away from being ready. More uh, forward thinking is the pan-coronavirus vaccine, which would take out all variants. And this can be done. And if we really push on this and give it number one priority, which hasn't happened yet in this country, we can develop this. I'm confident of that. And there's many uh, steps along the way, very promising that we'll get there. But we should go after that quickly because there likely will be other variants, new Greek letters to deal with that could be potentially even worse than Delta. And it's better to have a vaccine ready to take on the entire family of this so-called sarbacovirus uh, of coronavirus so that we don't have to deal with this anymore. You know, there have been mixed messages from public health experts on where we are in the state's fourth coronavirus wave. What are your thoughts on where we are in that wave? And can we start expecting cases to reduce or have we not seen the worst of it? Well, we've had an abysmal uh, performance here in the United States. We're over 100,000 hospitalizations now. That's more than 75% of the peak of the monster third wave when there was no vaccine. Uh, And in contrast, in the UK, they've suppressed hospitalizations by more than 75% in the country. So the reason for that largely is that we had such poor vaccination rates, especially um, in the people of advanced age, but across the board. You know, we're at 51% and other countries are 20% points higher than us of the total population. Now we've done a little bit better in California, of course, but, and in San Diego specifically. Our problem is that we had so much resistance to vaccines, a lot of anti-vax movement, anti-science movement. And other countries like Canada, which is exemplary, which has had a relatively small effect of Delta, whereas we've had a, a, a very marked um, problem of hospitalizations, increasing deaths, recently 1,000 deaths per day, Never, I never would have envisioned this would be possible in the post-vaccine era, but here we are. And, uh, you know, the, the, we would have had a better outcome had the FDA approval come early, but that's only a small part of it. Our real problem is things like Fox News and Newsmax and all the anti-vax work that goes on to undermine the success of these remarkable vaccines. You know, San Diego County is now the largest county in California to not have a mask mandate. The county cited high vaccination rates as the reason for not reinstating the mandate. But what would your recommendation be for masking? We should have a mask mandate. In fact, in Oregon, they extended that to outdoors, not just indoors. The reason being is Delta can be transmitted so readily. And even outdoors, if you're close with a person without a mask and that person is speaking loudly, yelling, uh, or even just, you know, breathing without a mask and you're, you have an extended contact, you could get the, the virus that way. So, no, a mask mandate would help right now. We will get through the Delta wave. Uh, it's certainly not affecting us as severely as places like Mississippi, Louisiana, Florida, and others. But um, while we're in it, there's so much circulating virus to deal with. The best thing we can do is up our protection to the max, and we're not doing it generally, and that's a problem. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you at KPBS. It's either great news for San Diego or a reason to think about moving, depending on your circumstances. Research by the home improvement site, 
porch predicts San Diego's median home price will reach close to a million dollars by this time next year. Local real estate experts are not completely in agreement with that estimate, but they admit housing prices will continue their double-digit increase and a million-dollar median is not out of the question. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune senior business reporter, Philip Molnar. And Phil, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Maureen. What's the percentage that housing prices would have to increase to reach about a million dollars next year? Porch is predicting a really hefty increase of 24.7%. So that would bring our median home price from where it's at right now to 940933 at this time next year. So it's it's not exactly a million, but it's it's getting pretty close. Now, what's the median now? Okay, so right now it's around 750000 So pretty incredible. <laughs> is that kind of increase possible? Yeah, I think it is because we've seen home prices go up. As of right now, home prices are up about 15% in a year. But at certain points during this past few months, they've been up about 20%. So we haven't really seen anything that would really change in the market that would stop this upward climb. We still have very low mortgage interest rates. There's very few homes for sale in San Diego County. We're not really increasing the number of homes we're building. And even though a lot of the pandemic, we've focused a lot on people that are suffering because of job closures and all that other kind of stuff, is people that are able to stay working from home, they've really seen their fortunes increase, not just wages going up, but also saving money on gas and all that other kind of stuff. So there's a lot of money out there. Now, what does this Porch website base its predictions on? Okay, so one of the reasons I did like the study is they used a ton of stuff. They used Zillow, Redfin, US Census, the S&P CoreLogic, Case-Shiller Indices, And what they were kind of looking at was a lot of things, a lot of these different websites, they have their own predictions, but also one of the biggest things that they base it on is how much homes are selling for over asking price. So it's very intense in San Diego, how many homes are selling for over asking price. I mean, we had something like 4% of homes had a price reduction last month. So it's really not, it's very hard to find a deal in San Diego. And they're kind of looking at that number and seeing the demand here and saying, okay, San Diego is going to be one of the hottest markets in the country. Would you say that this is a housing bubble, just like before the Great Recession? No. And most experts I talk to say no, because there's stricter credit requirements. Part of it is interest rates are so low that your monthly payments aren't as extremely high as back then. And we have seen wage growth and increased fortunes and all that kind of stuff that kind of play into why this is. What I will say about that is there is some nervousness going on, especially when you talk about you know loan programs that offer like 3% down or less, because with home prices getting to such a high level, that's going to make your monthly payment so high. But you know, as of right now, we haven't seen any change in those sort of loan criteria. We haven't seen any indication that interest rates are going to go up. So yeah, most experts say we're not in a bubble, and that's the sort of information they give us. Now, you spoke with local real estate experts who doubted that real estate prices across the board in San Diego would increase almost 25% in a year. But one expert said we could see that in single-family homes. Why is that? 
Single family homes are our hottest thing in San Diego County. They are at a median right now of around 850,000. So it's not hard to imagine those going up near a million dollars. One of the reasons for that resale single family homes is we've definitely stopped building single family homes in San Diego County. If you look at the majority of construction over say like even the last 10 years, it's primarily multifamily housing, which actually is mostly apartments. So we're not really building these single family homes. Our population is slightly increasing. So there's such a fight for single family homes Lots of people, though, do live in apartments and condos. Would a big increase in housing prices also be felt in the rental market? Yeah. You know, what's amazing is in the last couple months, rent prices have exploded. San Diego County rent is up 9% in a year. And that's the highest I, I personally have records for going back to around the year 2000. So a year-over-year increase. There's a lot of factors going on that are causing that to go up. Part of it is, well, you still can't really evict anyone. So if you're going to start a new lease, you're going to start at pretty high. You've got different rent control measures. So there's a lot of that stuff. But a third factor that is always wrapped into this is, well, if you can't buy a house in San Diego, which increasingly more people can't, you might as well just be stuck renting. So because of that, there's more demand for rentals and that also pushes price up in rentals. What could happen to slow the increase in housing prices? The biggest thing is probably a change in interest rates. We've actually noticed in San Diego County, when the interest rate starts ticking up, and this is kind of the same across the United States, but when you see the interest rate ticking up, it tends to slow the amount of sales for homes. We haven't seen it that much during the pandemic because there's so much feverish demand, but an increase in interest rates could do it. Or again, there's always some sort of external shock that could cause some sort of thing like a, a, a recession or inflation explosion or anything. It's so hard to predict year over year what could happen. But the biggest thing in the short term that's probably realistic that would make a big impact is any change in interest rates. You know, before people begin to pack their bags to leave town when they hear about million-dollar houses, you ended your report with some words of advice on how seriously to take predictions like this. That's right. So predictions are so difficult in the home market. I've talked to some of the smartest people I know in real life that are dead wrong in what happens with home prices. I run this thing at the Union Tribune. It's a 12-person panel where I talk to 12 business leaders and economists every week. It's called the Econometer, and I ask them a question. So I asked them in December 2019 what the median home price would be at the end of 2020. The lowest was 570,000, the highest was 624,500. You know, that's the very high. You know what it ended the year at? 715,500. Nobody was able to predict how much home prices would go up. And I would argue that if if this group of experts couldn't get it right, even though there was something crazy happened with coronavirus, if they couldn't get it right, you know, just keep in mind nobody's exactly sure. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune senior business reporter, Philip Molnar. Phil, thank you. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. 
That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. California Republicans were ecstatic in 2003 when voters ousted Democratic Governor Gray Davis and replaced him with a Republican and movie star Arnold Schwarzenegger. Now with another recall election this September 14th, the state GOP is hoping to do it again. But was Schwarzenegger's tenure ultimately a win for the party? KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos has this look back. It wasn't just Davis's unpopularity or Schwarzenegger's Hollywood status that propelled the former actor to victory in 2003. Schwarzenegger capitalized on his position as an outsider, promising to blow up boxes and upend business as usual in Sacramento. He pledged to repeal the so-called car tax and balance the state's budget, but not raise other taxes. Former Republican Assemblyman Sam Blakesley took office around the same time as Schwarzenegger. It's kind of hard to imagine the enthusiasm that everyone felt having someone like Governor Schwarzenegger, uh, the Terminator, show up and claim he was going to fix the state, he was going to clean house, and he was going to restructure government so it worked more like a business. Blakesley, who eventually became the Assembly Republican leader, says it wasn't just Republicans who were excited, though. I remember talking to lobbyists and fellow Republicans and even Democrats who were genuinely excited to see what he could get done. At the beginning of his tenure, says former Schwarzenegger Communications Director Rob Stutzman. The party did consolidate around him for, for quite a while. But governing is different than campaigning, and Schwarzenegger soon found himself faced with a massive budget deficit, in part because he repealed that car tax. In his first year, Schwarzenegger had political wind at his back and managed to convince voters to borrow $15 billion to close the spending gap. But one year later, when he tried to go around the state legislature with another series of ballot measures, voters resoundingly rejected a package that, among other things, would have curbed state spending and weakened public employee unions. After losing that ballot fight, Schwarzenegger brought more powerful, experienced Democrats into his administration, including a new chief of staff. That was the point when a lot of Republicans broke with Schwarzenegger. Blakesley says the governor listened to those Democratic advisors. And Arnold embraced their perspective, and a lot of Republicans were aghast and you know, deeply confused because they literally thought they had voted for and had one type of governor at the top of the ticket and woke up the next day and found out he was someone altogether different. Budget fights with both parties in the state legislature would color Schwarzenegger's entire tenure. But another former Republican assembly leader during that time, Connie Conway, says she saw his willingness to listen to all sides as one of his major strengths. Conway credits Schwarzenegger for raising up the voices of minority Republicans during budget negotiations. I always appreciated the fact that I feel that Governor Schwarzenegger was inclusive. Everybody's opinion did matter. And uh, I mean, it was it's part of his DNA, I think. Still, Stutzman says that after Schwarzenegger won re-election in 2006 and reneged on a campaign promise not to raise taxes. At that point, I think Republicans were getting frustrated. And two of his crowning achievements may have undercut an already waning Republican Party in California. 
First, in 2008, he wrote a ballot measure that took legislative redistricting powers away from lawmakers and put them in the hands of an independent commission. Then in 2010, as he prepared to leave office, Schwarzenegger backed a ballot measure that ended party primaries in California and allowed the top two candidates to move on to the general election, meaning neither party has a guaranteed spot in the runoff. If you want to make sure the lines are fair and you, if your goal was to make sure that the election was determined by as many voters as possible, Republican and Democrat, then that was a success also. That's Alan Zarenberg, CEO of the Cal Chamber. He says the initiative did what Schwarzenegger and other backers wanted. They opened the door to electing more centrist politicians. Stutzman also sees those measures as a win because they strip power from both parties. And says Schwarzenegger achieved other victories, like reforming workers' comp. By and large, I'd put Arnold up there, uh, his Republican governor record, with, with just about any Republican governor we've had. As of today, he's also the last GOP governor California has seen. That was KQED politics correspondent Marisa Lagos. Excessive heat is forecast for San Diego County's deserts through the rest of the week, and it will be pretty toasty across the region as well. But the unusual item in this week's weather forecast is smoke. Smoke from wildfires up north has drifted into the county and will drop to lower elevations in the next few days. So our skies may stay hazy and our sunsets appear more dramatic than usual. Joining me with more is National Weather Service meteorologist Alex Tardy. And Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me on again. Is this smoke coming from the fires in Northern California or the Pacific Northwest or both? Yeah, everyone's probably starting to notice it now, uh, especially at sunset with the orange reddish sky uh, with the big ball of sun. It's pretty amazing. But that's the smoke uh, we're seeing. And it started on Monday in it's been increasing over the past two days, and here we are, middle of the week, and it looks like the smoke is going to settle down right on top of us. It is coming from Northern California. It's coming from numerous fires that are ongoing in Central and Northern California. Some of it is probably even coming down from the Pacific Northwest. The weather systems that are going by to the north are basically pushing that smoke down here into Southern California. Now, as the smoke drops closer to the ground this week, is this wildfire smoke a health hazard? It can be, yes, uh, especially to the sensitive groups. Uh, The air quality will be deteriorating today and likely linger into tomorrow, Thursday. So those sensitive groups uh, with allergies or asthma or other type of illnesses you'll probably be the ones mainly affected by the smoke. It looks like the smoke will be worse um, in the early mornings and then also again in the evenings when the air really settles over us. You know, during the day, unfortunately, we have the combination of ozone, which is our regular pollution, and the smoke combining together. So if you can avoid going out and doing activities uh, today and tomorrow, uh, that would be advised. Okay, so we, we're getting just a small little uh, taste of what this smoke is like, but it, it isn't much compared to the areas closer to the fires. Can you tell us what the situation is there? Yeah, the situation remains uh, uh, quite extreme 
in central and northern California. Um, you know, we've all heard about the Dixie fire, but there's other fires that, that are growing uh, and in some cases out of control with their growth. Remember, northern California is on year two of the drought. So conditions up there are about as severe as we've ever seen in terms of fire spread or the ability for the fire to grow uh, in almost any weather condition. So firefighters are really struggling trying to get a handle on it. We're, we're at a pace that exceeds 2020 last year, which was bad too. And we, as we all know, are just entering into our peak fire season here in Southern California, which really doesn't uh, peak until October. So if we don't get a handle on things, conditions don't look too promising in the near future with these large, large fires continuing to grow across the state. And tell me what the smoke situation is closer to the fires. I mean, is it really hazardous for people's health even to go outside at all? Yeah, it really is. Um, If you remember the fire, the Valley Fire in September of 2020 last year, you know, that blew smoke directly over uh, National City, El Cajon areas. And it's really just plain unhealthy to breathe that type of smoke. So if you can imagine fires 10, 20, 50 times the size of the Valley Fire burning in Northern California, the communities up there in the Sierra Nevada, uh, in the mountains, the desert slopes, you know, they're suffering day in, day out from that heavy, dense smoke. It's not just a visual, you know, it's it's also respiratory. It's, it's also unhealthy, you know, to be breathing it in. And the closer you are to that source, uh, the more concentrated or, or unhealthy it is. So, Alex, what's the forecast through next week and maybe even the Labor Day weekend? Okay, yeah, it looks like we're going to deal with a heat wave coming up here, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, the peak of the heat wave for the coastal communities will be Thursday, but it looks like the heat's going to stick around for us. So most areas are going to see the peak of their heat Thursday, Friday, but unfortunately, it doesn't look like we'll see much relief over the weekend. Uh, so this heat, this will be one of those heat waves that kind of slowly builds on us today and tomorrow. And then it sticks around all the way through the weekend. And what I mean by heat wave, I mean temperatures 5 to 10 degrees warmer than on average. So that's going to get us well in the 80s on the coast, 90s in the valleys, well over 110, probably close to 115 in the deserts. Mountains won't have much relief. Uh, If you like monsoon moisture, you know, this is kind of a dry heat right now, uh, a smoky dry heat. Monsoon moisture will return on Sunday and Monday. So that means two things, humidity noticeably increasing late in the weekend and early next week, and also the potential for thunderstorms in our mountains. I've been speaking with National Weather Service meteorologist Alex Tardy. Alex, thank you so much. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. A local award-winning concert pianist, educator, and podcast host can now add author to her resume. Jae Yoon Kim is celebrating the release of her new book, 
Whenever You're Ready, How to Compose the Life of Your Dreams. It's a self-help book about preparing for life's experiences. Whether it be a job interview or training for a marathon, her book offers readers advice on how to stay focused on and achieve their goals. She also talks about her personal life in the book and shares insights that she gained from her life experiences. Ji Yoon, welcome. Thank you for having me here. You're an award-winning pianist and educator and host of your own podcast. What inspired you to write this book? Well, I had a dream uh, of writing a book for a long time, and but I had a many of monsters in my head saying, "It's people are going to read this book, or do I have anything to say? Can I write it in English, which is not my main language? A lot of negative voices. And then about a, two years ago, actually beginning of covid I asked myself one day when I woke up, why not? What if I wrote a book? And I had to create so much courage and I made a decision. Uh, I'm going to write no matter what every day and see what happens. And I wanted to share my life experiences and behind the scene as a pianist, which is so similar to preparing life. For me, it is. And I can see so much of similarity there. And every time I walk to the stage, right before, maybe 30 seconds before I go on a stage, there's always stage manager holding a door to the stage and telling me, whenever you're ready. And at that very moment, I ask myself, am I ready? <laughs> and uh, at that very moment, I have to create so much courage and strength within and telling myself, I am ready. I am enough. I am loved. I am loving person. There are audience out there that really want to share this music with me and excited. Then I make a decision to walk the first step and telling the stage manager, give a nod. And I, that, then the stage of my concert begins for me. And I, for me, everybody has a stage, not maybe not piano performance, but like life stage. So I actually wanted to talk about every aspect of preparing a concert, which is not about practicing. A lot of it is practice, but it's a lot of it, how to manage my negative voice in my head, how to connect with others, how to connect with music, how to create inner child in me and let it play and creativity. Hmm. And, and so one of the things it seems, as you mentioned, is self-affirmations. Um, before you go out on that stage, you have that moment where you tell yourself you're ready and you're enough. What other tools and tips do you share that have helped you propel your career as a pianist? I guess it is daily life, uh, lifestyle and everything that I do, what I eat. I know which food is actually good for me, my body, and for the optimal performance. And I also um, movements, any type of movements that I emphasize in the walking because everybody can walk. Um, it's not, not equipment needed. Um, and I emphasize about, yeah, daily journaling has been really helping for me in terms of preparing that mental uh, stage and really honing into the day I want to have and the person that I want to be. And I think journaling is really strengthened that muscle every single day. Um, maybe in the morning, I might write about uh, what are the things that I'm grateful for, uh, what are the things that I could improve on today's and or free forming, free form uh, writing this so that I can really um, face myself what's going on. 
and also meditation. <laughs> I'm not really an expert of a meditation, um, but I find that mm, I've been doing this maybe the last seven years uh, almost every day. And the meditation tool itself has been really helping me to in touch with myself, not a victim of, of emotions, uh, but when any negative emotions come arise to my mind, I can catch it before I actually react. So I can respond and actually um, just observe rather than uh, uh, I do something out of frustration. And I, before I get to the action, I know I am frustrated because of the daily practice. Um, I think that all of the, those tools, along with actually creating a habit and how to create that habit so that I can stay motivated. And I, I think it's motivation is not that you are motivated and do something, you actually do something, then you will be motivated. Hmm. You know, the way you wrote this book is interesting and in that you structured it like one of your concerts. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I, I actually wanted this book to be uh, like a concert experience. Um, so I had a prelude and I talk about the intro of the book. Then I have five movements. And first movement is about the work itself, creating a habit and daily motivational um, habits that I create. And the second movement is about the mind, uh, negativity, how to deal with that. And third movement is about the creativity, how to awaken your inner child. And fourth movement is about the connection with yourself and to others that help you to move forward with your life. And the fifth movement is about about you, your body, your environment. And I even actually talk about the last chapter is about death and the beauty of our limit that it's as it is, it's beautiful. And in between those movements, I have intermissions that that is a place that I actually talk about a piece of music. It is like a reversed version of a concert, I guess. In intermission, I actually talk about a one piece of music that is really dear to my heart. And I, I direct them and there's a QR code in the book that you can go to listen to my podcast and listen to my own performance of it. And ultimately, what do you hope uh, readers take away from your book? Yeah, you know, I think I realized this book is self-help book category. But when I wrote it, I never really thought about this is a self-help book category and anything like that. My wish was that as if you are sitting down with me in a cafe and have a nice coffee, talk about life, the things that I, um, it was useful to me. And I, I tell you just like a friend um, and sometimes that, you know, you know, maybe many of the tools that I mentioned in the book that you heard it before, but when you, you hear again with your, from your friend or a different perspective, you somehow get it, or you try one of tools that a friend mentions. So I wanted uh, this book to be friendly, honest, and compassionate and warm. Uh, like you talk to a friend and so that when they prepare um, a stage of life, when you needed that courage to make that first step, which is the hardest step, that I'm there, maybe this book is between you and your stage door. So whenever you're ready, you can embark that first step. I've been speaking with Jiyoon Kim, author of the new book, Whenever You're Ready, How to Compose the Life of Your Dreams. Jiyoon, thank you so much. Thank you. 
Rachel Lynette's play, Black Mexican, will premiere in a staged reading at this year's Latinx New Play Festival. The festival is put on by the San Diego Rep and will take place online and in person next month. Rachel spoke with KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando. Rachel, you are part of the San Diego Rep's Latinx Playwright series, and your play is Black Mexican. So tell people a little bit about what the play is about. Yeah, so Black Mexican is about, it's an ensemble piece where all of the characters are um, trying to figure out exactly what does it mean to be Latinx or Latine, um, or Latin, which is how I prefer to say it. And so... The short version, it's about a lot of big things, but the easiest way to say it is a student starts to question whether or not her professor is actually Cuban or not. Meanwhile, there is a Belizean character who's trying to figure out if she counts as part of the Latin identity as well. And so it's it's kind of an exploration of what does it mean to be part of this identity that encompasses so many different countries that are all so different and also, and what, who do we give access to our culture and who do we keep out and why? Now, in the play itself, there's some information for people, uh, even links to articles. So what was it that you kind of wanted people to know in advance of the play? Uh, and what inspired you to put this together? <laughs> anger. Anger inspired me. That's what <laughs> inspired me. Um, I, I feel like this happens a lot, right? Like, uh, this is not really a spoiler. The character that everyone is questioning, whether she's Cuban or not, she's not. It's really not that big of a spoiler for me to give that away. Um, she is a white woman who feels very attached to the culture. And so after Rachel Dolezal, I was like, okay, whatever. I don't have time for this. Uh, she's in a whole nother world. Like, I don't have time for this. But then I was living in Wisconsin, and then Jessica Krug, or Krug, I'm not really sure how to say her last name, happened. And that deeply upset me because she was a white woman pretending to be, specifically pretending to be Afro-Latina, and I'm Afro-Latina, and I have had to fight and claw my way into just getting other people to recognize my identity, and all this white woman had to do was tan her skin. And I just, I could not... And I was just like, why do we keep letting this happen? And like with Hillary Baldwin, same thing, where it's like she pretended to have an accent and everyone was like, yeah, she's Spanish, it's fine. And it's like, no, it's not fine when there are people who, like Tessa Thompson or Lupita Nguyen, like where it's like we never acknowledge that they're also part of the Latin um, community until they had to be like, yeah, me too. And that just really deeply frustrated me. And that's why I wanted to write this play because I have been fighting so hard for people to see my identity. Meanwhile, other people are just like, I'm going to take it. I'm going to get some dreads. <laughs> Here we go. So that's frustrated me. And the play is set in what you describe as a city that thinks it's liberal in 2020. And why is that important? And what is that meant to make the audience think about? I think that a lot of people, when they see plays like this, as I have another play that where it's set in a similar place, they're like, oh, that would only happen in the South, or that would never happen in New York. And it's like, yes, it would, and did. <laughs> um, and so I really wanted to emphasize that this is a city that thinks they're liberal, because I think liberals like to give ourselves, we like to cheat out. I, I'm someone who identifies as a liberal. But we like to cheat out. We're like, oh, that's not us. That's them. That's them. And we don't look at ourselves enough. So I kind of really wanted to say, like, don't try to put this in, like, a southern town where they don't know better. 
no, this is a liberal town where people claim to embrace diversity, and yet this still keeps happening. And what does it mean for you to be included in a series of plays that are identified as Latinx? It feels really special. As I mentioned, like I, um, this is an identity I've had to fight for. I've had to question. My mom used to put um, Pacific Islander on the census because she didn't know what else to put. Um, because she didn't, she doesn't, she still doesn't really know how she identifies. And so it feels kind of validating and it feels really special and important to me because I'm embracing a side of myself that I um, have felt like I've had to fight for for so long. And it's kind of nice to get some validation. And I'm also really excited to read the other plays. I don't think it's a, a monolithic experience. And I'm really excited to hear the other voices. Well, in addition to reading the other plays, part of what this is about is kind of workshopping plays. This is not a full-on production of your play, but it allows you as a playwright to kind of start to see what your play is going to be like. And why is that important and how does that help you in the evolution of your play? Yeah, I think plays are very communal. I think that plays are playwrights, we just kind of write the bones but you don't get the actual play until you work with a director and an acting team. And so the workshop process is really important to the play. This play specifically has a lot of cultures in it that are not mine. I am not Dominican. I'm not Cuban. Um, And so it's really important to, I think that if you're going to represent a culture to have those voices in the room, and that's what's really powerful about the workshop process is that there's an opportunity to include voices outside of your own that still live within your same culture And so for me, especially for a play like this one, the workshop process is super important because there's no way that anyone can be expected to represent every single country under the uh, Latinx identity. So um, for me, it's making sure that I'm saying what I need to say, but that I'm not erasing someone else's voice at the same time. And the workshop process really helps with that. And how do you feel that theater can help kind of open people's eyes to different experiences in ways that other things can't in a way that just reading a book or reading a a news article or, you know, having a journalist explain something to you. What is it that theater, what do you feel that theater can do differently and maybe better? For books, I can say, I feel like you can do a lot of self-editing when you read a book. You can change because it's your imagination. You can just decide, right? Like there's this book that I'm reading where the main character is blonde and in my brain, I'm like, nah, (laughs) I don't like that. I'm going to change that because I really identify with this character and I was like nope she's my complexion now and you can in books you you get to kind of like play with a narrative in a way because it's an individual experience whereas theater is a collective experience and so you can't just say no you're not that because there's a human in front of you you can't it's much harder to do that when there's someone looking at you and you have to embrace it rather than it all being in your mind and so that to me is the biggest difference is that when you read a book that's individual and theater is communal and that part of that communal, my favorite thing, and I can't wait till we can get live again, is when everybody in the room gasps or everyone laughs at the same time. Or everyone sits back, you know. Um, it's, it's truly a communal, brings us together. We experience empathy together. We experience pain and sadness. And then we are all challenged, but in a way that usually sometimes is safe. So that to me is the biggest difference. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about your play, Black Mexican. Thanks for having me. That was playwright Rachel Lynette speaking with KPBS arts and culture reporter Beth Accomando. The Latinx New Play Festival will take place in person and online September 3rd through the 5th.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.